Good morning. I am William Morgan, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. This is a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. And I have to ask, if you have your ticket, will you be in the room? SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com is coming to the Bay Area this week for our San Francisco Sync Up in Berkeley, California, Saturday, October 26th at the Monkey House. More more details can be found at thesyncbook.com slash events, of course. And, and you don't want to miss this. Um, today, on this 22nd day of October, however, we finalize our exploration of our humanness with episode number 107, Good Grief, by getting us all to second base and into sync with this month's pink ribbons. Indeed. And as Anthony said to Cleopatra as he opened a crate of ale, perhaps today we'll find out why some girls are bigger than others. Good morning. <laughs> Douglas Bowles here, and today on 42 Minutes, we're speaking with Florence Williams, contributing editor at Outside Magazine and freelance writer for The New York Times, Slate, Slate Mother Jones, Oprah, W, Bicycling, and numerous other publications. Her work often focuses on the environment, health, and science, and recently she was a visiting scholar at the University of Colorado's Journalism School. She has been presented with six magazine awards from the American Society of Journalists and Authors, as well as the John Hershey Hershey Prize at Yale. And her work has been anthologized in numerous books, including Outside 25, The New Montana Story, How the West Was Warmed, and Best American Science and Nature Writing 2008. She was named Author of the Week by The Week in May 2012, and The Wall Street Journal calls her writing droll and crisp, which makes her feel like a pastry. Her book, Breasts, Natural and Unnatural History, published in 2012 by W.W. Norton, of which we'll be speaking today, received the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Science and Technology and the 2013 Audi in General Nonfiction. It was also named a notable book of 2012 by the New York Times. She serves on the board of her favorite nonprofit, High Country News, which is a wonderful magazine, and lives with her family in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for coming on today. Hi, Will. Thanks for having me. You you bet. Well, so all this month, we've looked at attributes that make us uniquely human. We've talked about our relationship to time, about our consciousness, and our relationship to stories. What would you identify as a uniquely human feature, and what about it has contributed to our humanness? <laughs> okay. I, uh, I wanted to write this book about breaths, and I was interested to find out that, in fact, breaths are really unique in the animal kingdom. And at first I thought, well, you know, there are 4,000 mammals out there. Surely, you know, they all have breasts more or less. Um, but I was wrong. Breasts in, in humans are really different from breasts or from mammary glands in other animals. And, and that's because uh, in humans, we start to get these swellings on our chest, um, you know, at puberty. And then we have them our entire adult lives. Whereas, for example, in primates, you know, even our closest ancestors, they really only get these swellings on their chest while they're lactating. And then they recede again. So, you know, I have friends who joke that their breasts also receded <laughs> after lactating. But but in fact, you know, we do really more or less have them our entire adult lives. And so then the question is really why? And, um, and, and that's where things start to get pretty interesting. 
Well, so one of the things, one of the things that I liked about the the book was how you, um, you mentioned that perhaps it, I mean, uh, naturally you spend some time with some of the the male ape. The breasts are for a sexual attractor, but one of the things you mentioned was that we're human possibly because of the breasts that our lips and our speech developed because of the shape of the nipple or the shape of the breast and all. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So our, our breast is really unique. Um, it's, uh, you know, fully rounded and sort of pro, you know, protuberant. Um, and it looks like it really co-evolved with the human infant in a way that enabled the human infant to develop um, speech. And, and part of how that works, um, well, you know, first of all, our nipple um, really demands um, lips. <laughs> and so because of the breast, we have lips. So we have the breast to thank for the fact that, you know, we have this sort of musculature um, and the anatomy of the mouth that facilitates, um, you know, not only speech, but but also kissing. You know, there are all sorts of reasons we should thank the breast. Um, but then beyond that, wow. the human infant is the only infant that can't hold its head up. Um, and so uh, we have these long necks, you know, that hold up our heads. And so the, the shape of the breast actually enables the mother who's nursing to hold the baby. The mother has to hold the baby. Um, and she holds the baby in her arm. And then the breast kind of comes down to meet the baby. You know, so I heard someone describe the nipple as a movable feast. You know, it's kind of, uh, it moves around. And so the mother can hold the baby's neck up. And that's great because that enables the baby to have this neck. And then inside the neck is our larynx. Um, and so that's why we have speech because we have these long necks. So it's all sort of complicated. But but I think, you know, throughout history and, and throughout sort of contemporary academic discourse, you never hear the breast actually get any credit for this or for the evolution <laughs> Of humans beyond, you know, just the fact that that breasts are really sexy, and and sure they they also feed infants, but but you don't really get the sort of fuller acknowledgement of how much they've contributed to humans. Well, you, yeah, and you do say in the book how uh, responsive they are to the environment, which we'll definitely focus on a little later. But my, uh, for the sake of disclosure, I I just had a baby, and so my wife is breastfeeding. And she, I'm curious, what she heard recently is that when the mother kisses the infant, oftentimes some of the pathogens on the infant's are transferred into the mother. So the baby's on the floor moving through the world and picking up these different germs and things. And then the mother kisses the baby. The germs go into her, and then the mother creates pathogens for those germs, which she passes through the breast milk. Had you... Well, yeah. I, uh, congratulations, first of all. Mm. <laughs> I hope it's going well with the breastfeeding because it's sort of challenging. Um, the... You know, yes, there's this incredible conversation that goes on all the time between the infant and the mother. Um, there's this sort of two-way, you know, highway of information. Um, and it's how the infant kind of conveys its needs to the mother. And then the mother responds in turn and can actually change the formulation of the breast milk depending on the condition 
and of the infant. And so it's possible that it's through kissing. You know, as you mentioned, the mother kisses the baby, um, gets information about the pathogens. But it's also possible that all this is actually being mediated through the nipple itself. And it looks like that is also occurring. So bacteria from the baby is sort of somehow getting into the nipple. And then in turn, um, the germ-fighting substances in breast milk are getting specially formulated to meet and fight those pathogens in the infant. So if a baby does have an infection, mother's milk responds by putting things like more lactoferrin um, or more antibodies from the mother in the breast milk. And in that way, that's one of the ways that breast milk actually helps make babies um, healthy. And in fact, you know, is more, much more responsive to an individual baby um, than, for example, formula. And you describe breast milk as a combo of or, uh, <laughs> ice cream, penicillin, and ecstasy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's delicious, right? It's mm -hmm. yummy. Um, we, we also know that the, the act of breastfeeding, um, you know, is really hormonally driven and hormonally responsible. For the mom, lactating is like taking a drug. Um, she gets, um, you know, filled with oxytocin, makes her happy, makes her love her infant. You know, all these things are sort of finely tuned through evolution. Um, you know, it's kind of this beautiful, miraculous machine that, that not only makes the breastfeeding work, but actually makes motherhood work. Okay, so this is such a dis defining feature then of our humanity. I'm sure there's a lot of really good science on the human breast then, Yes. Uh, there's more and more. Um, the, the breast is actually, unfortunately, the breast is sort of handicapped, you know, by cultural, um, the burden of expectations. I mean, we, we tend to think of the breast as being the sexual object in Western cultures. And so what I argue in my book is that that has really limited our ability to study the breast and take it seriously. Um, and you see this, you know, in many fields. You see it, for example, in anthropology where for, for many decades, the dominant theory in anthropology has been that really breasts exist as a sexual signal for men, and that's why we have them. Um, and, and it's only been more recently that an other anthropologists are saying, you know, maybe the reason we have these beautiful, rounded, unique breasts has more to do with um, the fitness of the infant and the fitness of the mother. Um, you also see it in, in fields like um, cancer biology and uh, it's, it's, it's harder for cancer biologists to get funding sometimes to study the architecture of the breast. In fact, the anatomy of the breast is something that, that hasn't really been looked at seriously since the 19th century when you had these sort of brilliant British anatomists sort of taking apart breasts from corpses and, you know, actually figuring out how they worked. And, and the reason they were interested in that was because of the dairy industry. <laughs> what? That's what really drove a lot of understanding about human breasts. Like we actually know a lot from cows. Um, so, so, but I'm happy to say that, that actually there's more and more science all the time as people are sort of starting to, for example, understand these unique properties in breast milk. Mm -hmm. um, and now you have formula companies, you know, actually doing a lot of this research because they want to try to mimic these properties to make uh, formula uh, more responsive and better. Okay, so I'm just speaking hypothetically here, so you can laugh and take it as a joke if you'd like. But say that somebody would want to study from an outside source, study the human race. That's the first thing that they would go for then, right, would be 
the breast. You would want to study cows and you would want to study the female breast to understand how we evolved the way we did. Um, well, I think there are a lot of things you could study, you know, in human anatomy that make us human, like our brains. Um, perhaps- I'm just I'm just thinking of cattle <laughs> mutilations, okay? Like oh. every time you hear cattle mutilations, that's the first thing you hear is they're taking the udders. Oh, I thought they were taking all sorts of uh, reproductive organs, but yeah. Right, they, yeah. They're, yeah. you know, the anus and the right. udders, but there's always it's the so- udders that are like s- surgically removed mm. almost. I hadn't actually heard that, but I'm going to add that to my database. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I have been of some use. <laughs> you guys continue. I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> no, but, so, well, so for the benefit of some of our younger listeners, could you tell us who Rachel Carson is and what the Silent Spring was? Yeah, sure. Rachel Carson uh, was a journalist, and in 1962, she published uh, a really important book called Silent Spring, um, in which she really decried the use and overuse of pesticides um, in our environment. And she documented how birds were dying and um, eggs were being thinned um, from DDT. She especially talked about a pesticide called DDT, which was um, kind of a a leftover chemical from World War II that found civilian use, um, really widespread use. Um, and it was it was even sprayed in babies' rooms, um, inside homes to even kill houseflies. <laughs> and then, you know, within a couple of years, the houseflies became resistant to it. Um, but, but meanwhile, you know, all these children were um, exposed to this poison. Um, we no longer... Um, use DDT in this country, and that's because, uh, largely because of Silent Spring and and the work that Rachel Carson did. And and you invoke this at the beginning of your book, but you know, um, I'm curious, what's the relationship between you know, the this organ, this really unique organ, and the environment? Well, so it turns out that that breasts are very sensitive to environmental change. And unfortunately, to environmental degradation, um, breasts evolved this way. Um, they're supposed to be a responsive organ. Um, they ha- they're filled with estrogen and progesterone receptors, for example. And that's how they kind of read the wind. Um, it's how breasts know when to start growing in puberty. And it's how they know when to start building the mammary gland um, during the last trimester of pregnancy. Um, unfortunately, many chemicals in our modern world, such as DDT, mimic estrogen uh, and otherwise sort of alter hormone regulation in the body. And so the breast is unfortunately sort of a victim of that. And it, it looks like that's one of the reasons why breasts are, for example, showing up earlier in young girls. You know, may, maybe a lot of your, your listeners have kind of heard of this phenomenon of early puberty. Um, it's something that, you know, we all see kind of anecdotally. It's like, well, what are those third graders doing, you know, wearing bras? What's up with that? And then the other thing that's happening is that breasts, of course, are getting bigger. And this is something that's been documented by the lingerie industry. It's sort of partly explained by the changing Western diet. You know, all of our body parts are getting bigger. Um, breasts are, you know, one manifestation of that. But but it also may be that um, estrogen triggers breasts to grow and to grow bigger. Um, and, and, you know, we know that we have these chemicals now that, that also do this. Hey, Will, so both Will and I have daughters. My, my oldest 
child is 10 years old, and she got her breast buds at the end of last summer. I'm curious, Will. Where, not yet. Not yet. But is that, in the scheme of things, is 10 years old, is that about normal now, or is that still kind of young? So that used to be considered kind of uh, the early side, you know, and kind of unusual. Um, but now that's actually very normal. And it's, it's what parents and pediatricians are kind of calling the new normal. You're seeing um, about uh, a third of girls starting to grow breast buds um, by their ninth birthday. And in African-American girls, it's more like um, a third of them by their eighth birthday. So there are some dramatic changes going on in younger girls. And parents should be concerned about this, even though it's kind of being normalized. It's actually still a cause of concern, and I'll, I'll tell you why. The first reason is that girls who go through puberty earlier have a higher risk of breast cancer later on in life. Um, girls who actually get their periods before the age of 12 um, have uh, up to like a 50% greater risk of breast cancer compared to girls who, who go through puberty um, you know, several years later. And then another reason is that girls who develop breasts, you know, eight, nine years old, these are girls whose, you know, sort of cognitive um, development hasn't caught up to their physical changes. And so they're at greater risk for sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. They're at greater risk for things like depression um, and poor school performance um, because they're treated differently by their peers. And it's it's hard to kind of, you know, overestimate actually the, the um the consequences of that um, as these girls develop. So they're not mentally prepared. They're not emotionally mature enough to handle that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And they're they're treated differently, you know, by boys, and they're more self conscious. Um, uh, it's something that that parents and educators, I think, really need to be on the lookout for, you know, and to help support these girls as they go through these changes. Um, you know, just as parents support support kids going through, you know, sort of comp confusing changes uh, in other parts of their life. And so they need our support. Yeah. Okay. So this, I want to say how much I appreciated your book and it's, it's a lot of fun and very, your, your, your writing is really playful as far as, uh, you know, you use euphemistic words instead of just clinical scientific. And so it, it's playful, but then, you know, there's a really dark like like girls who get large boobs. Well, you yeah. call them young age need our support. Those kind of euphemisms. No, no, like uh, <laughs> she says, rack and knockers and. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's a, you know it's interesting. I, why do we have uh, why do we name them dumb things? Well, you, you made the well, ninnies and and boobies and stuff like that. They're they're words for you know idiots. Right. There's, you know, there's something about breasts um, that's just inherently kind of funny, you know, they're, they're funny organs and we've treated them this way for a long time, you know, in modern history. Um, certainly in the 18th and 19th centuries, there were terms like num nummies um, being used to describe breasts. And that term probably comes from numbskulls. Um, which, as you say, means idiot. And it, it's partly because um, breasts are for infants, you know, um, who uh, aren't very sophisticated. But but also, you know, breasts <laughs> kind of 
also render men, as we know, kind of idiotic. And and actually, there are studies that show this. Um, mo- you know, in, in modern day, um, there are men who take uh, play computer games, you know, in a lab. <laughs> and if you show them kind of like images of breasts along the sides, the periphery of their vision, you know, they they really do very poorly <laughs> on these tests of cognitive skills. They get really distracted. So, you think that's you know, inherently cultural somehow that we're, we've been programmed or do you think that's more of a genetic thing where it's just built into no, no. our, like I've even women notice boobs though. Well, it's a great question. You know, have men always been kind of rendered, you know, stupid, stupid <laughs> by breasts. Um, is it, is it something innately in our, um, you know, in our genes? Um, and, and, and that gets back to the sort of original debate about the evolution of breasts. So there are some anthropologists who say, you know what, all men throughout all time have always been sexually attracted to breasts. And therefore we think breasts must exist for men, but there's actually totally. no evidence. <laughs> there's no evidence of it though whatsoever. And in fact, if you talk to men who really like breasts, they, um, they sort of project that, um, that preference out, you know, to everyone. But I've also talked to lots of men who say, you know, I'm actually more of a leg man or I, I don't really, he's, they're like, I don't really mind if they're small breasts or if they're big breasts or if they're medium breasts. Um, and it, it's very hard for the men who are really obsessed with breasts to relate to those men. <laughs> <laughs> I have <laughs> but, no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you that they do exist. And in fact, if you, they, these, some of the anthropologists have, have done surveys, you know, cross-cultural surveys, like how do men in Africa feel? How do men in Papua New Guinea feel? And it, it turns out that there's actually this really wide range of preferences um, and interests in breasts. So in fact, it looks like not everyone is obsessed with breasts. And in fact, it is largely a cultural artifact of, of modern times. Well, I always think it's so funny when um, the, the scientific theory seems like this uh, unconscious canvas on which a lot of different scientists accidentally project their own perversions. Uh, it's, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. And so they, they have – they list these defining features of humanity but in fact they're often often you know listing their social mores or uh you know their own kinks and i think anthropologists have become more aware you know of their own biases um and you know it's sort of postmodern it's this postmodern recognition that oh yeah actually we do tend to have biases that color the way we see the world so there's starting to be some recognition about it which is a start well, to that programming, um, could we travel to San Francisco and you could tell us about Carol Dota and, you know, who yeah. she was and why she was special? Well, it's impossible to talk about Carol Dota without talking about really large breasts. Um, and somewhere along the line in, you know, mid 20th century America, um, our society became obsessed with large breasts. It probably has to do with Hollywood. And there's actually an interesting backstory there. Um, you know, during the silent film era, there were no sort of codes of conduct in Hollywood. And so you had actresses of silent films typically had really small breasts, but they were often portrayed in sort of diaphanous, you know, kind of see-through clothing. And you could actually see the nipple in these early silent films. And these women were very sexy and very beautiful. 
But codes of conduct came into Hollywood in about the 1930s or 40s, which said, you know, actually, you can't show the nipple. <laughs> Sorry to tell you, you can't show the nipple anymore. And Hollywood responded to that by just um, hiring actresses with bigger breasts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, then you had Jane Mansfield and Jane Har- Jean Harlow and, you know, Marilyn Monroe. And so, so into all this came Carol Dota who was a burlesque dancer in the 1960s in San Francisco, she realized that she could um, have more career success if her breasts were bigger. And so she went through a number of injections of silicone into her breasts um, until they became size 44D. (laughs) And and she was actually known as the Twin Peaks of San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) Um, she was such a cultural icon and and so famous that she really um, helped influence a whole generation of burlesque dancers Um, and now of course you have restaurants like um, Hooters and and what they call the breastaurant you know um, (laughs) genre of food delivery Um, a lot of this started with Carol Dota well, and so part of the playfulness that I mentioned is you tell a story of breast implants stopping bullets, but then in that <laughs> same chapter, you, I mean, it reads like a, a horror story, but, all the torture that various women went through in basic science experiments to figure out, you know, how to do this. Well, you know, once culture sort of demanded that, um, or sort of privileged women with bigger breasts, um, women, there was a big market for, for augmentation. Um, and this was also uh, really facilitated by the plastic surgery industry, which of course made a fortune by selling women breast implants. Um, Carol Dota injected silicone into her breast because that was, you know, she was doing this really sort of before um, silicone implants, uh, which were more like baggies filled with silicone. Um, became popular. Um, but so before that, that, that happened in 1962, the first breast implant surgery. Before that, women were doing all sorts of weird things um, and their surgeons doing weird things to make their breasts bigger. They were implanting things like um, plastic kitchen sponges, um, glass balls, you know, wood chips. I mean, there's, there is this long sorted history of objects being placed into women's bodies. And unfortunately, you know, this didn't always end well for these women because they often got terrible infections. Um, gangrene in your breasts is not really a fun phenomenon. Um, that, you know, their breasts would turn green and purple. And in some cases, their breasts had to be amputated. Um, and in some cases, women actually died because of the infections and also because these materials like the, the silicone gel that was injected um, sort of migrated into women's lungs and into their brains. Um, so it, it's just sort of yet another story of um, experimentation on women's bodies. And it's, it is a sad story. You know, you you mentioned that some of these stories, though, the women were experimented on and, and suffered horribly later, but they said that they wouldn't have changed the surgery overall, though. 
Well, so that's I'm and there I'm referring to women who got the silicone implants, which mm-hmm. were kind of more medically, you know, rigorous and more medically tested. The silicone that eventually was used in the implants was a medical grade silicone. Where some of those early injections, that silicone was left over from industrial uses. It was not a clean silicone, not a clean material. Um, but even the medical grade, um, you know, the silicone implants, the sort of official medical ones, um, led to a lot of side effects, a lot of problems. Women, um, you know, got their breasts got very hard, you know, and that's that's where I recounted the story of a woman whose life was actually saved when her you know, ex-boyfriend shot her and the bullet bounced off her <laughs> hardened implant. And there are still stories, there are stories like this on the internet of women who get stabbed, you know, and they're saved with their implants. <laughs> and the blade bends. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bionic implant. Well, and the first Im- implant person, I think, I mean, it seemed like you'd tell the story that she was kind of bribed into it a little bit that she wanted her ears done, actually, and the she wanted her ears pinned back. You're right. That's yeah. That's kind of a funny story. I, I met the first woman to get um, silicone breast implants. Um, this occurred in the surgery was in 1962 in Houston, Texas, and um, this woman's still alive. Uh, she she went into a public hospital in Houston because she had a tattoo on her chest that she wanted removed. And, and she happened to walk into the room of the surgeon who had just invented the silicone breast implant. And he, he'd already implanted it in a dog named Esmeralda. <laughs> and he, poor, poor Esmeralda. Yeah. Right? She, she actually didn't like her implants and she chewed them out. <laughs> oh. But the surgeon was looking for a human guinea pig. And so, you know, in walked this woman and he said, wow, you know, I see that you have small breasts. Um, I'd like to give you some breast implants. And she was like, what, really? Oh, I never noticed that I had you know, <laughs> a problem with my breast. But um, she said, what I really, the surgery I've really always wanted is to get my ears pinned back. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. <laughs> I'll pin back your ears if you agree to get these implants. And um, she was kind of charmed by him. He was a charismatic you know, kind of brilliant surgeon. And um, so she agreed to it. And uh, lo and behold, you know, 50 years later, she actually still has those original implants in her body. She's now in her 80s. Does she regret it now? Does she regret it? So she has mixed feelings, I would say, about her implants. Um, I think there's a, a, a side of her that was very proud to be part of this, you know, kind of medical pioneering um, but but those implants, those fifty year old implants, have not really fared very well in her body. They they are very hard. Um, they have caused her pain, and she has like sort of weird, unexplained joint pain that that actually is not that unusual among women who get implants. It's probably some kind of immune system response. Um, so she's had some problems with her implants, but. But she won't go right out and say, oh, I regret it. You know, I think there's a part of her that I, – I said, would you do it again? And she said, well, I would really have to think about it. Hmm. Having small breasts. Now, that's been diagnosed as a disease. Is that is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so this was another ploy of the plastic surgery industry in the 1960s. In order to convince women to buy these implants, they invented a disease called micromastia, which means small breasts. 
And uh, <laughs> they, they convinced women that having that's small marketing. breasts was this major handicap um, in life. Yeah, that's marketing. And it, you know, it kind of worked um, to some extent. Um, they, they convinced women that if they, if they had bigger breasts, they would have such happier lives. Um, and a lot of women uh, decided to try it. And in fact, they still are. Breast implants today are more popular than ever. You might you might think we, we've become more enlightened, but we haven't. Um, and in fact, women who get breast implants do report higher feelings of self-esteem. Um, and despite side effects, they a lot of these women say that they would do it again. There's a whole discussion about um, the contradictions, of course. So, like you point this out, we're we're going for something sexy that defeats sexual awareness on some level. Um, I'm I'm just thinking about how nature sometimes is is pretty intelligent, and then some of the things that we do is is a little less intelligent. <laughs> Well, the whole thing with implants, the irony is that women want to look sexier and they think having bigger breasts will make them look sexier. Um, but in getting the implants, 14% of women, according to some studies, actually lose sensation in their nipples. So in order to look sexier, they're um, actually diminishing the sexual response of the organ. Um so, you know, it's just one of these weird kind of sad twists of fate. The, the other thing, of course, is that implants can also impact lactation um, and even breast reductions. A lot of women get breast reductions. That's something that's kind of not known as much. Um, these women also lose uh, their ability to lactate some of the time. So, um, you know, we're, we're doing these things for the appearance of the breast, but, but in doing so, we're really diminishing the sort of natural functioning of the organ. Uh, here's something that you don't mention in the book, um, and I'm just really curious. I've heard this bra conspiracy come up every now and again, where there are women who are saying that the bra is a conspiracy of men and it actually creates weaker boobs. Have you ever heard this? Yeah, I have. You know, uh, you guys have probably never worn a bra, <laughs> but sometimes they're not very comfortable. You know, I haven't, can... Douglas. Oh. Douglas. <laughs> you know, it's this really constricting piece of clothing, and the the elastic can dig into you, and you know, you sweat, and um, it just feels like a straight jacket sometimes, especially women I think who have big breasts. Um, you know, you have to wear these kinds of big, you know, um, highly constructed garments that aren't very comfortable. Um, but on the other hand, you know, for, I think for some women, it's more comfortable to wear a bra than not to wear a bra, especially if you're doing sports. Um, mm -hmm. And there have been some studies, you know, motion and physics studies looking at, um, you know, how much the, the breast kind of moves around um, and chafes, you know, against clothing during sports. Um, and so, so, Thankfully, you know, bras have gotten a lot better recently that, you know, we now have these kind of nice materials and they're comfortable and they're, they're breathable and um, they're better sort of constructed. So women can, can run marathons, for example, you know, in a way that, that maybe large breasted women wouldn't have been comfortable doing a generation ago. Um, 
feminists have always, you know, a lot of feminists, you know, I, I think I, there was this apocryphal story about how they burned bras, but it actually turns out that didn't really happen. <laughs> it's just one of those things that's attributed to feminists that that isn't really accurate. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think there's, I think it's sort of a nuanced conversation. Okay. That's, that's beauty. That's aesthetic. And this is, you know, the patriarchy putting our, uh, desires onto, you know, like here's the canvas and we're blasting everything at that. But now one of the interesting things about your book is you're speaking about the woman's body, but you're also speaking about the natural environment. And so you're, you're creating this connection between the two. And this is also breast cancer awareness month. So could you explain for our listeners what biomagnification is and (laughs) what, you know, what is going on there? (laughs) So the, the reason I actually wrote this book is because I was breastfeeding my daughter and I heard that there were toxic chemicals um, actually getting into breast milk. And so my baby was consuming things like flame retardants and jet fuel ingredients and pesticides. Um, and of course, this you know freaked me out and I wanted to find out what it meant for her health. I also wanted to know what it meant you know, for, for women's health. You know, How are these chemicals getting into our bloodstreams and and what does it mean um and so that's really what launched this whole book and and then i started looking at other ways that modern life has changed breasts so so you asked about the term biomagnification and um when we eat food um we also eat the chemicals um that are in the food that we eat so you you especially see this uh, with fish, for example, and sometimes we eat large fish like tuna. Um, tuna has in turn eaten medium-sized fish. Those medium-sized fish once ate small fish, um, and that the toxins actually bioaccumulate up the food chain. So we might think of, you know, adults, humans as being on top of the food chain because we eat everything, um, but it turns out actually that there's one trophic level higher than the adult human, and that's sadly the infant human, because the infant human, you know, consumes you know our breast milk, um, and the breast milk sort of co- can can concentrate some of these toxins that we take in. In fact, the most effective way for a woman to detoxify her own body of toxins is to breastfeed. This is sort of a sobering thought, and in fact, you see this with, um, for example, dolphin bottlenose dolphins. The firstborn dolphins have these really high levels of toxic chemicals that they get from breastfeeding. And the new mothers have relatively very low levels of toxins. And it's because she's, you know, off sort of, you know, um, offshooting these toxins into her firstborn. Um, I'm happy to say that in humans, it looks like the levels of these chemicals is really low. Um, in in the breast milk generally, although that may be different for, for example, women who are exposed to sort of um, occupational um, toxins or, um, you know, environmental um, accidents, you know, like um, there have been cases where, you know, dioxin accidentally got into the food chain, you know, in parts of Europe or flame retardants, high levels of flame retardants got into the food chain in Michigan in the 1970s. Um, and those those infants actually uh, who breastfed during that time do have higher rates of cancer. They have higher rates of early puberty 
Um, so, so we do think that these toxins may be affecting infants, you know, at higher levels. Um, but I, I also want to be really careful to say that formula also contains toxic chemicals. Um, we know that the formula, for example, has heavy metals in it. It has um, bacterial contaminants. It has pesticides from the water used to mix the formula. Um, so unfortunately, you know, we, we don't really have a pure alternative. I, for me, writing this book, I became really politicized and started to think, you know, wow, wouldn't it be great if actually breast milk were clean again? And, and maybe we should think about regulating some of these hazardous chemicals um, so that they're not in our food supply and they're not in our couches and in our computers and getting into our bloodstreams. So um, we only have a minute left, but what, you know, what could we do to create a cleaner environment to make breast milk clean? Well, it's actually pretty simple, and I'm surprised we haven't done it. <laughs> um, but I think there's a lot of political opposition to it. And, and that is we actually need to test chemicals for safety, which we don't do right now, before they enter the marketplace. And then we need to regulate them. And so, how how do we how do we enact that? Where, how do, do we? Okay, so so there's actually a bill in Congress right now. Um, it's called uh, what is it called? It's to reform TOSCA, which is the governing um, chemicals policy act um, that EPA uses. Um, and and uh, unfortunately, there's been a lot of um, you know bipartisanship or not bipartisanship. There's been a lot of partisan opposition to this. Um, industry is really powerful in Washington. Uh, the chemical lobby does not want to see chemicals regulated. So, uh, you know, I'd encourage everyone to, you know, get more informed about, about this legislation and to support it. Well, well thank you. That was 42 minutes. Um, uh, thanks for sharing it with us. Uh, you've been listening to Florence William on SyncBook Radio, a production of the SyncBook.com. More information about the work of Florence Williams can be found at florencewilliams.wordpress.com. For more information about the Sync Book, our guest, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we urge you to become a donor. You'll find the, the donation links under each of the episodes on the website. Um, thanks so much, and have a wonderful Tuesday.
Some girls' mothers are bigger than others. Some girls' mothers are bigger than others. Some girls' mothers are bigger than others. Some girls' mothers are bigger than others.